let me get into my podcast voice. Hello and welcome to Last Week in AI's podcast. That's this it, yeah. Lauren, staging uh, your crew. Uh, you're crew. Why would you do this to me? Oh, uh, no. Okay. I, I will not stand for this. I will do the intro. Hi, and welcome to Scanner Today's Last Week in AI podcast. We can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I am one of your hosts, Andrei Krenkov. I finished my PhD at Stanford earlier this year, and I now work at a Gen AI startup. And I'm your co-host this time, and I'm previously a co-host way back in the day when we first started this podcast, Sharon Joe. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Lamini, uh, a large language model enterprise platform. Um, and I previously also did my PhD at Stanford with Andre and was adjunct faculty there as well. That's right. We actually covered news about Lamini not too long ago. So <laughs> some people might be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, Jeremy is busy with policy stuff, so he can't make it this week. He will be back next week for regular listeners. But uh, this should be a fun episode. We have been uh, off for a couple of weeks, so I just kind of got all the big news stories of the past couple of weeks, of which there have been many. And this will be yeah, so we'll, we'll try not to go for like four hours uh, with this recording, but suffice it to say, there's going to be a lot of cool stuff. But before we get into it, we got to do a quick ad for the Super Data Science Podcast, which is the most listened to data science podcast globally with 12 technology podcast globally. And they cover machine learning, AI, data careers, data science, all that hosted by John Crone, the chief data scientist and co-founder of machine learning company Nebula, and a co-host on this very podcast several times. So you might have already heard from him. Uh, he's also the author of the best-selling book, Deep Learning Illustrated. So with that kind of repertoire of books and with over 700 episodes that get released twice a week, John is very knowledgeable about AI and data science, perhaps more knowledgeable than we are, but I don't know, I wouldn't make that comparison. And if you need a starting point, you can go ahead and find the episodes on which our co-host Jeremy was interviewed on that podcast and see if you like it. And now let's get going with the news in applications and business with the number one story of probably this year in AI that you probably have already heard and we're going to discuss quite a bit. Sam Altman has been fired as CEO of OpenAI. And a huge surprise to just about everybody, this was announced uh, on Friday, just uh, yesterday. This firing was done by the board it appears not so clear, but uh, yeah, there's been some disagreements and uh, Sam Altman was just straight up fired. And afterward, co-founder and president Greg Brockman also stepped down and left the company. In addition to several other high profile um, employees, researchers within the company. This news is crazy. We were just talking about how like it hit yesterday and it felt like Steve Jobs being fired or like 
I don't really know. Like, there's very few pieces of news I can recall that have been this dramatic and, you know, just hit people by such a level of surprise. There's not a ton of details yet, and that's part of why people are talking about it. It's not super clear what happened. Initially, what people were saying is most likely Sam Altman did something very bad <laughs> that we don't know about because it was such a, such, you know, like if you read the actual statement by the board, it kind of throws Sam Altman under the bus. It's not one of these like nicely worded statements where, you know, the CEO is great, but now we need a change of leadership. It was basically like Sam Altman was not honest with the board and now we are firing him. Uh, so, yeah, it is still not super clear from the emerging details that have been coming out yesterday and today. It appears that maybe there wasn't any big giant smoking gun. And the current kind of narrative that people seem to be coming to is that this was basically a coup within the company. So Ilya Suskover and some other board members appear to have really been unhappy with a for-profit, very kind of aggressive growth strategy that Sam Altman was backing. And there's been a lot of tensions internally and kind of came to heads with this vote. And essentially, yeah, Sam Altman was thrown out. And uh, it appears that Ilya and the other board members kind of were on one side of this fight. And Greg Bachman, as you said, left and several other senior researchers left. So uh, it came as a surprise to most people within OpenAI. It came as a surprise to Microsoft. It came as a surprise to kind of everyone almost. So it's it, this is crazy news. Yeah, this is very, very surprising news. Um, I think the split obviously seems to be coming from a split in ideology of the original founding of OpenAI, which, uh, by the way, has always had so much tension, right? This OpenAI's founding has had so much tension, and it's probably this exact tension just built up over time around safety versus commercialization because there's so much profit to be made. Um, so I think you know, in places where this has happened, you know, obviously when they changed the org structure to add a for-profit, you know, branch of it, that was very, very controversial. Bringing in Microsoft, very controversial. Um, uh, base, you know, this is split before. Elon Musk was split off before. Um, Dario Amade and the safety team has split off before and created Anthropic, which is now OpenAI's biggest competitor. And uh, so now there's another split off, essentially. And so this tension, I think, has always basically been inside of this organization. And and one, you know, one thing that I always hear from from others is that startups don't get murdered, they they commit suicide. And so it's always from, you know, the internal tensions of of working at a place and and growing such an important thing um, that causes this problem. And, and it happens in hy hyper growth a lot. It happens, uh, obviously, when you're stagnant, it happens a lot too. But in hyper growth situations, uh, people want to either buy for power or otherwise and, and have different interests. Um, so I really think this probably comes down to that. I think I hear um, murmurs on Twitter of, uh, you know, people saying, oh, one group wants to move fast, one group doesn't want to move fast. I, I really don't think that's a split. I actually think the split is more around commercialization or 
or, you know, the research angle. And I think it's very clear from Dev Day, at least for me, that they were not advancing the research angle of AGI that much. Like I, I was very surprised that, you know, oh, it's just product features. There's there's no real leap. And and honestly, like if I were to just be honest about conversations I had with other researchers, it was, oh, are they stalling, you know, on research? And so um, is, is this, you know, the, the top of, of where, uh, open AI will asymptotically approach, approach that goal. And so I, I see probably, you know, that probably was felt even more internally, um, than what was seen externally. And so, uh, I, I suspect there's something there with, with that. And I, I will say, I don't know, I don't really know everyone in this situation. The only person I actually know a bit is Ilya. Um, and from what I know about Ilya, I don't think he's a quote doomer. I don't think he wants to slow things down. In fact, before anyone was into accelerating AI, he was into it and he really believes in building a really safe AI and so, um, an AGI. And so that I know he believes in. And so, and he wants to build it quickly, but also within, you know, open AI. Um, so that's, that that's kind of all I all yeah, I know. Yeah, and uh, yeah, there's a lot to unpack in the story. I think one of the maybe interesting bits is also the fact that this is coming from the board of directors, right? So the people who made the call there was Ilya as one of them, but there's also some people basically independent of OpenAI who don't have a stake in the commercial success of a company as is intended with this nonprofit board of directors. And there are some members on it who, you know, uh, people are now kind of discovering and being a bit surprised are not in sort of a mainstream commercial world of AI. For instance, uh, Helen Toner, who is the director of strategy at Georgetown Center of Security and Emerging Technology, who is very much on some of these conversations around AI safety, uh, very much concerned about race dynamics between China and the US in terms of increasingly improving capabilities. Uh, so that is also worth noting that you know it's not even necessarily a rift within OpenAI per se. It could also be just at the top, at the director level. But uh, yeah, this just happened. We are still finding out new details. Literally today, there was a new article from uh, Bloomberg that had some details. One thing that has been said by the board of directors in a statement was that there is no kind of smoking gun, like crazy event around, I don't know, losing data or stealing money or anything like that. So it doesn't appear to be that Sam Altman did anything crazy to uh, cause this. Right. And one of my favorite tweets is around, this is the, this is definitely the start of a villain origin story. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Uh, I'm excited to see what, what happens next. I think basically what's going to happen is hopefully everyone in their respective organizations will work on something that we're, that they're personally aligned to. OpenAI will move forward with um, the more research AGI angle. Sam Allman and uh, Greg Brockman, uh, it sounds like, you know, murmurs that they're probably going to um, uh, start something new. Um, so obviously more commercially minded. And so uh, I, I think I think that is likely to happen, um, but we'll essentially see as. Yeah, I'm sure unfold. Sam Altman's email is full of VCs begging to give him money for whatever he does next. So, 
Just like, please yeah, take my billions of dollars to make your next company. <laughs> <laughs> correct. 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 They are fighting right now for, for that, for that spot. And speaking of all this drama, we also would go ahead and cover a bit before this to set the stage. There was the OpenAI Dev Day that happened uh, two weeks ago now. And that seems to have been maybe one of the catalysts that led to this eventually happening. The Dev Day, as you said, uh, had a lot of announcements related to mostly the product side. So they did launch a lot of new initiatives as far as the commercial offerings. Uh, the big one was GPTs, which was essentially allowing people to make specialized chatbots. So take ChatGPT, kind of tweak it a little bit, and now you have a chatbot that's specific for translating language to emojis or something, or you know, explaining the text of uh, philosophers, whatever you want, you can make your own chatbot. So that is now a new offering from OpenAI. And there were some other pretty notable announcements, in particular GPT Turbo, uh, GPT-4 Turbo was announced, and it is cheaper and quicker than GPT-4 which was a big deal for uh, developers using OpenAI's um, APIs. And yeah, there's just a host of announcements that came out of that. There were uh, Dali Free was available through the API. Whisper was made available. Uh, they introduced their audio API, uh, so quite a bit. And just one more announcement that I think is worth highlighting is that OpenAI announced uh, their Copyright Shield program, which is for offering legal protections to businesses using OpenAI's products, similar to what Microsoft and Adobe have also done. So they are now in the same kind of thing of, if you use our uh, AI and get sued, we are going to help you out in that uh, uh, case. That's right. And I feel like the most substantive change I felt as a consumer is uh, in a you know user is is uh, the multimodal capability. So I think everyone really felt that obviously GPT-4V was there, but now you know it's searching the web, it's doing all sorts of different things. It, Dolly is integrated into uh, the ChatGPT interface. So I definitely felt that. And so that was an interesting change in the user experience um, in terms of the capabilities that were that were offered through that. And I think that is also a stark difference from a lot of uh, competitors like Anthropic, um, for example, uh, that n don't necessarily have that yet. Right. And uh, yeah, seemingly as a consequence of this, uh, I think about a week after OpenAI actually had to halt new signups to their ChatGPT Pro uh, subscription because they basically ran out of compute. So there's some speculation that maybe that's one of the... Uh, issues that have effectively by offering these commercial uh, products, all the compute ended up being used for ChatGPT, the product, and then they couldn't use any, you know, enough GPUs for research, which increased these tensions. Uh, so yeah, uh, the dev day was definitely very heavy on offering new APIs for developers and kind of in this more commercial direction, as you said. And uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see <laughs> what happens now. Oh, I heard the halting might have actually been from a DDoS attack, but 
who knows? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> who knows? No, not going to confirm that. I did not investigate. That, they did say um, that. So, uh, yeah. yeah, anyway. So, we'll keep covering the news. I'm sure we'll have plenty to discuss next week about OpenAI as more details emerge. Okay, but in addition to OpenAI, yeah, we have we certainly have other news from uh, other companies. So, uh, Cruise Cars from General Motors has suspended uh, supervised and manual car trips, and it has expanded probes. Um, so, this is a big piece of news in the autonomous driving community. Uh, there was a very tragic incident, essentially, uh, where a cruise car um, hit a pedestrian and drag that pedestrian around it. So they are investigating essentially the, you know, technical root cause of this. So they um, uh, have recalled their vehicles. Yeah. So this is, uh, has been a developing story for a couple of weeks and there's been a bit of a spiral of back, bad news for crews. The original inciting event we covered a little while back was that San Francisco um, revoked the ability of crews to uh, sell their uh, product to allow people to uh, hail these uh, self-driving cars, kind of their Uber-esque service. And it seemed to be because not just of the incident in which uh, actually a normal driver, there was a hit and run from a human driver that hit a person and launched this human onto Cruz's car. And then the cruise car did break as soon as it could, but it also then automatically tried to pull over because there was an accident. And somehow the person that it hit was dragged by the cruise car for some distance. Uh, and it appears that there was kind of a cover up or, or at least some shady uh, communication from cruise execs to the DMV about this. So they, in an initial email to VDMV and in an in-person meeting, it seems that they didn't show the full video of a person being dragged and they didn't kind of mention it in the email. And that kind of quasi cover-up uh, seemingly has led to the spiral where first VSF uh, thing was revoked, then they uh, crews decided to halt all autonomous driving throughout the US, everywhere, and now it's even supervised and manual car trips. And GM has stated they will halt production of cruise driverless vans. So just a torrent of bad news for cruise. Uh, and yeah, really dramatic to see how, you know, being shady in one interaction uh, to this extent can seemingly, you know, Cruise was doing somewhat well. They were expanding, they were offering this uh, app to hail their cars for a few months and not clear where this will go now. Yeah, and I, I actually think this hurts the entire autonomous vehicle space since uh, they and Waymo, Cruise and Waymo were really up there, up top, but then removing one of these big players is honestly... Um, it doesn't help Waymo either. So I think this is actually hurting um, autonomous vehicles even more. Um, obviously, we've gotten much further from what I hear from other people. You know, taking these cars, they actually really like them um, in general. So both from Cruise and Waymo, they really like them. And so, uh, you know, there there was some progress in public sentiment, at least uh, from, from my vantage point. But I, I do think... Uh, 
yeah, I, I do think this is obviously an issue. And then trust between uh, the government and these organizations is certainly an issue if they're going to be, if there are only a few players deploying these and they're deploying them without being fully transparent, it doesn't doesn't feel right to, to allow them to, to operate when you don't know. Basically, they're unknown unknowns of what they're not even telling you. So um, this is kind of an unfortunate setback on autonomous vehicles. Yet again, remember, um, several years ago, we all thought it was going to be here or decades ago even. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. I personally and, and maybe people also in Silicon Valley feel a bit sad about this because it did seem to be coming about, you know, Waymo and Cruise were offering this for anyone in SF to hail a cab. I've, I've used it and, you know, it, it felt kind of exciting to see it finally come about. So it's unfortunate that some, some exec or some high level people at Cruise really decided to be shady. We can hope that perhaps this will ultimately lead to better communication lines and, and kind of not doom the industry, but we'll have to see. And on to the lightning round with some stories that are not quite as dramatic. Unfortunately, not everything is this exciting, but this is pretty exciting. We have a story, Microsoft unveils first AI chip, Maya 100 and Cobalt CPU. Uh, so that's the story. This Azure Maya 100 is optimized for tasks such as generative AI, and it has over 100 billion transistors, which sure sounds like a lot. Well, I don't know. It uh, is pretty advanced. It's built on five nanometer technology, and yeah, will be deployed in the Microsoft cloud offerings for Azure, which uh, was what OpenAI is using and what is, in, I think, is is quite popular for Open uh, for Microsoft. Next article, uh, AV startup May Mobility locks up another $105 million from NTT and Toyota. Um, so May Mobility and this news, again, comes just a couple weeks after the cruise announcement of suspending uh, the, the self-driving uh, program. Um, and May Mobility is an autonomous vehicle startup. Uh, their total funding is about $300 million. They were founded in 2017. Uh, they um, basically develop autonomous vehicles as well. Um, I think the most interesting thing is the NTT group, which is one of their big investors this round, has actually exclusive rights to distribute May Mobility's proprietary autonomous vehicle technology throughout Japan, and that the companies will work with Toyota to develop uh, a good autonomous driving ecosystem. That's right. So still some funding, but it is definitely drying up. Uh, I'll just go ahead and mention that uh, Argo AI was shut down uh, late last month. So yeah, this, this year is not great for uh, this sector. And some more fundraising news. We have Aleph Alpha raises 500 million Series B in Europe's third largest AI round ever. This is a German company, uh, Aleph Alpha. And they have seven new investors, uh, this Innovation Park, AI, Bosch Ventures, and uh, SAP. And they you know, are going to use the money to build a large language model for enterprise use. So essentially, they are aiming to compete with OpenAI and Anthropic and similar companies. And uh, yeah, I guess you need 500 million if you want to do that. You need at least 500 million, correct. Cool. So uh, next article, AI startup 12 Labs attracts uh, $10 million from NVIDIA, Intel, and others. So 12 Labs is an AI startup uh, in Korea, and this is 
NVIDIA, NVIDIA's first inve- investment into a Korean AI startup. Um, and they uh, are basically creating AI models that are multimodal so they can understand various types of information in video, um, specifically uh, such as the text, logos, conversation, or behaviors inside of a video. Um, and so this is uh, interesting you know, news for them. Um, and uh, uh, they've secured essentially investment uh, to work with um uh, obviously, Nvidia, but also, um, you know, Samsung, et cetera, inside of Korea. That's right. We covered their Pegasus uh, One model recently. So, yeah, and more multimodal uh, startups coming about, it seems. And one last funding story defense tech startup Shield AI raises 200 million at 2.7 billion valuation. So, this is a Series F round. Uh, this Shield AI has been for uh, around for a while, and they have various products, including HiveMind, which enables autonomous operation of aircraft in high threat environments. Um, it's the biggest funding round in uh, any defense tech startup this year. So, you know, AI and military are going to be good friends, as we probably already know. Yep, that is not surprising. Uh, and I'm actually surprised there's not more, more startups in that space. And on to our next section with tools and apps, starting with Elon Musk debuts Grok AI bot to rival ChatGPT and others. This is one of these news stories that was a couple of weeks ago, but we are now catching up on in this episode. And yeah, Grok is essentially XAI's version of ChatGPT. And kind of a big novelty is that it's kind of sarcastic and arguably funny. <laughs> Uh, so if you, there was an example where uh, there was a post by Elon Musk and you can tell it, tell me how to make cocaine step by step. And uh, the bot will then tell you, oh, sure, just a moment while I pull up the recipe for homemade cocaine, you know, because I'm totally going to help you with that. Step one, obtain a chemistry degree and a DA license, et cetera, et cetera. So it's sort of snarky and, and you know has that kind of uh, vibe to it. I think the general consensus was that this is pretty lame among the AI world. Doesn't seem like a serious challenge to ChatGPT, but I don't know, maybe you will find this fun. Uh, probably uh, beyond humor, what's interesting is that it also obviously is trained on Twitter data and has access to tw- Twitter data uh, specifically uh, and more exclusively than the other models, especially on recent information. So it can actually access current information that's trending on Twitter. Um, and sorry, I mean X, not Twitter, <laughs> um, trending on X. Uh, and so it can grab those messages and actually use that, uh, you know, more up to date information. Uh, within the models. Obviously, you know, the other models have access to different search APIs uh, that can then grab recent information, but this is kind of very specific to Twitter and is able to feed that Twitter information in uh, in, a, in a very particular way. And I could see that going in a direction where it could be very exciting because so many things happen on this platform, on X, sorry, I should stop saying Twitter, uh, and happen on X, including obviously the news that broke yesterday around, you know, uh, the firing of Sam Altman from OpenAI and, and all the different 
different theories around it. And so uh, that could be interesting to have a bot be aggregating some of that or or reasoning through some of that. That's right. Uh, this is still, I believe, in closed testing. So there's no real way to get access to it. Uh, it's a relatively small number of people are able to test it out, but presumably there will be a kind of closed beta and wait list. And eventually you will get to try this out and play with a new chatbot. Next article is Brave Response to Bing and ChatGPT with a new, quote, anonymous and secure AI chatbot. Um, so Brave is a privacy-focused browser, um, and you know it automatically blocks unwanted ads and trackers, and it's rolling out uh, a native AI assistant called Leo that the company claims provides unparalleled privacy compared to other chatbot services, AI chatbot services. And so this is following you know several months of testing. Leo is now available for for free by all Brave desktop users, uh, running running um, probably their latest version essentially. Um, um, and it's being rolled out in, in phases. And so this is trying to compete with some of the larger uh, chatbots out there and really claiming the privacy angle. Um, data privacy is obviously very important uh, for AI and different companies and even consumers using it since data, you know, obviously makes these models better. So most AI foundation model companies will be incentivized to collect more data as much as they can um, or use derivatives of that data as much as they can to improve these models. Um, but of course, Brave here is claiming that they are going to avoid, uh, you know, potentially doing a lot of that. You know, their chatbot conversations are not going to be recorded or used to train AI models. No login information is even required to use it. Um, and so it's really not collecting uh, that data or setting up the structure to, to collect that data or associate it with a specific user. Yeah, that's right. Uh, with ChatGPT, you are able to toggle a setting to make it so they don't store your data and don't use it for training, but you are then a little bit handicapped. You can't have your history of chats uh, be accessible, so it, you have to go out of your way to make sure it is private in that same way. Um, so yeah, if you want to be especially private, you're definitely not going to get that from Google Bard or Bing Chat or whatever, uh, so this might be a good option. Yeah, I also just want to say that, uh, you know, there's no regulation around for all this. So, you know, despite the fact that no one is collecting data from a direct data standpoint where you, your exact messages to the models are not collected, there's no right, there's nothing here where any of the companies say that the derivatives of that data may not be used or the, you know, some kind of aggregate statistic of that data may not be used um, because those, that data does go on to then uh, improve the models. And moving on to the lightning round with some more stories about chatbots, uh, starting with actually a story about ChatGPT, again, catching up on some older news coming from OpenAI Dev Day. Uh, ChatGPT is combining its different abilities into a single Voltron style chat. So uh, ChatGPT has been releasing various features uh, like being able to upload and talk about files, browse the web, uh, generate images, all sort of a separate little um, ways to do it via the UI. And now it's just all combined into this one chatbot. So it's called All Tools, and you can now have all of these capabilities all built into your ChatGPT instead of having it separate per chat. So as you said, similar to Grok, now you can ask ChatGPT about current events and it will look up things on the web and so on. So pretty useful. 
Next article is LinkedIn's new AI chatbot wants to help you get a job. Uh, so LinkedIn has now surpassed 1 billion members um, and it's launched a new AI chatbot to help you get a job. Uh, so, you know, very cool um, that LinkedIn has now exceeded a billion users. Um, so a huge platform, obviously, for finding a job and recruiting. Um, and they are debuting an AI chatbot to help you find a job, a job seeker coach, they say. Um, and this is uh, being rolled out for their premium members. Uh, so this is essentially an AI chatbot that you can talk with to uh, be able to help you find your next gig. I'm sure they're also thinking about on the other side for the recruiting side, how to um, help recruiters as well. Uh, note that LinkedIn is owned by Microsoft um, so Microsoft, uh, which has a, a huge stake in uh, OpenAI, uh, you know, this is all kind of combined under that same umbrella family. So very interesting to see how this plays out. And one more chatbot story. Meet Samsung's answer to ChatGPT, a new model called Gauss. Gauss? Uh, so this is a gen generative AI model similar to ChatGPT, although it has three components, Gauss language, Gauss code, and Gauss image. And these three can handle things you know, like ChatGPT, writing emails, summarizing documents, but also, as you might imagine, Gauss image can generate images and Gauss code is optimized for code. This is uh, still just an announcement, so it's not clear when this will be released, but it most likely will be on one of Samsung's uh, upcoming phones, like the Galaxy S24 next year. And uh, Samsung does say that it uh, aims to make this safe through uh, having its AI red team and having on-device AI that processes data locally. That's right. So it hasn't been released yet, but they're announcing kind of the beginnings of it. Uh, and uh, I will say, I think that it uh, we'll we'll see where that goes, but of course they're trying to release it within the uh, Samsung phone, so it's native to that phone. Uh, so it makes a lot of sense for Samsung to be playing in this space, just like Apple is um, trying to play in this space as well. Um, uh, but yeah, obviously both of those companies are kind of behind um, the software only uh, companies right now. Um, and one last article related to that, so related to kind of the hardware side and integrating with um, you know software, it's Humane's AI Pin. All the news about the new AI-powered wearable. So Humane's AI Pin uh, is essentially. And they had a demo video and debut video uh, where you can tap this AI pin that you can wear on your clothes. It's really small. Um, it has like a little magnetic battery, um, so you can easily you know, reach it and, and stuff. And you can do all sorts of things that are similar to what a smartphone might do, like make phone calls or text your friends. Um, but you can also kind of talk to the AI bot to be able to do do things for you. Um, it costs uh, $6.99. Uh, $699 with a um, $24 per month subscription. So it's not super cheap, uh, but it's not crazy expensive on the thousands for, um, you know, like a more like a closer to a VR headset uh, or a nice VR headset. Um, they did just debut it. One cool feature is that you can cast a UI onto your hand um, to control, you know, certain aspects of that device. This is, a, you know, one uh, kind of, showing of, okay, here's a wearable smartphone. Is this going to be the next generation of 
essentially computing and, and smartphones, um, uh, is this really taking on, you know, is this going to be the next interface after what, what Apple has showcased to us? And so I think that's what, that's what they're trying to get at. Um, and, uh, Sam Altman is, is an investor in Humane as well. Right. Yeah. This generated, uh, I think, a decent amount of discussion among people looking into emerging tech. Uh, to describe it a little bit more, the spin is like a little square. It's like maybe slightly larger than um, an Apple Watch, for instance, and, and kind of flatter, obviously. Like an AirPods case. <laughs> like an AirPods case that you can stick onto your shirt or something, right? So it's a pin in that sense. And yeah, it's kind of this vision of having an AI assistant that you can talk to on your clothes at all times. And you can do a lot just through this conversational medium. It can obviously read you your texts. You can tell it to play music. And it has this built-in projector, as you said. So it, you, the UI is actually done through hand gestures and, and weird stuff like that. So very you know, novel piece of technology, unclear if it'll actually be useful for anything. But uh, interesting to see maybe this will be like you know, how her, the movie will come about where we have all these AI assistants that we just wear and take us everywhere. And on to projects and open source. Uh, article is valued at $1 billion. Kaifu Lee's LLM startup unveils open source model. Um, so Kaifu Lee is uh, the famous author of AI Superpowers, um, and he's a uh, venture capitalist in computer science um, in China, and he wants to create basically the open AI of China. Um, and, uh, you know, he has a new venture. They have a great ambition and they um, launched a company at the company's called O1.ai. And uh, they basically want to create a large language model or set of language models for the Chinese market in particular. Um, and they just unveiled, uh, you know, a big uh, open source language model um, called Yi 34 billion. Um, Yi means one in Chinese. Um, it's a bilingual model with English and Chinese as a base model trained uh, with 34 billion parameters. Um, it's significantly smaller, of course, than a lot out there, but it's probably um, the best at this bilingual uh, task right now, um, or it's trained to be to be the best uh, in moving towards that direction. So uh, exciting to see kind of China play more into this space um, and to have a bilingual model like this uh, now, you know, on hugging face. Um, so, so yeah, curious to see where this goes. Um, the company itself, O1.ai, um, uh, has raised a lot of money, but they haven't disclosed how much, um, but they're valued at a billion dollars. Um, and they've raised, raised funding from Cinovation uh, Ventures, Alibaba Cloud, and others. Right. And notably, this is licensed in the Apache 2.0 license. So this is possible for businesses to use similar to Llama 2 and Falcon. So essentially, it's now a third big LLM that is commercially usable. And uh, Falcon, of course, came out from Dubai. Uh, Llama came out of Facebook. And now we have this coming out from China. As he said, it is bilingual and, and probably better than Falcon or Llama at Chinese-based uh, tasks. So pretty significant move, I would say, especially for the startup space in China, because uh, Llama and all these open source big models are very powerful in terms of being able to build your own product instead of relying on OpenAI or you know any API, really. So interesting to see them do this and kind of go with the meta strategy of just releasing stuff. 
Yeah. And just a note, uh, these, uh, well, one, the reason why they probably did that is to engage the entire Chinese ecosystem to build more and to build on top of, of open source since it is, you know, essentially kind of, it's behind the um, uh, U.S. market. And cer- certainly if you were to look at, you know, the word language and large language models, certainly behind the English um, speaking market um, and language models are inherently, you know, language based. And so it is important for countries, I'm sure they are seeing this now to be able to catch up on a, on a language language level, um, since this is the next, you know, generation of computing with, with language, um, and, and you don't want to necessarily have your language be left behind. And so I think, I think that's probably, um, the motivation behind that. Yeah, exactly. It, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, last thing worth noting is this is, uh, 34B, right? So it's somewhat smaller than the biggest other models of Falcon at 180B and Nama at 70B. But uh, Lee did state that they feel quite confident that they might release bigger models like 100 billion over the next coming year. So we'll see. And on to research and advancements with some more cool stories, starting with Google DeepMind wants to define what counts as artificial general intelligence. This story covers the paper Levels of AGI, Operationalizing Progress on the Path to AGI. And uh, yeah, the story is basically that this paper is trying to formalize how we can define what artificial general intelligence is and you know, measure our progress. Uh, this is, I would say, kind of a big deal. Obviously, DeepMind, OpenAI, and the AI world in general has been talking about AGI a lot as this nebulous term that kind of broadly means human level or better than human level, but uh, can't really be defined concretely. So this offers a definition. Uh, to get a little bit into the details, DeepMind uh, defines uh, six distinct levels, with level zero being uh, no AI. Then there is level one that's emerging, equal or somewhat better than a non-skilled human. And then at level five, you have superhuman, outperforms 100% of humans. So it, it is fairly intuitive. It's not overly technical. But as far as I've seen, this is the first kind of initiative to really set down the terminology more formally. So I kind of uh, liked this initiative by them. Yeah, it reminds me of when autonomous vehicles, when we created all those levels, right? To level five, autonomous driving is when it's like fully autonomous. Um, so I, I think it's uh, a sign that the field is starting to think about, well, what are the intermediate steps to getting to this bigger goal? Um, and so th- this is essentially laying out those steps and being able to articulate what those steps are, um, or, or a first draft of that, at least. That's right. And currently, we are at this level one of emerging within uh, general AI. So we define general as wide range of non-physical tasks, including metacognitive skills like learning new skills. ChatGPT and Lama 2 are both at this emerging stage of equal to or somewhat better than an unskilled human. Level two, according to them, is competent, at least 50th percentile of skilled adults, which is not yet achieved by this metric. And uh, yeah, I guess the question is, are we going to get to level two next year or not? Uh, Maybe, who knows? And next article is Google DeepMind breaks new ground with Murasol 3 billion 
for advanced video analysis. Um, so Google DeepMind um, quietly revealed basically a, a, an advancement. So they presented um, this model called Mirasol 3 billion um, that is aimed at you know multimodal uh, learning essentially. I, and, and they took a slightly different approach. You know, um, many modalities are you know like audio and video might not. It might be, you know, well synchronized in time, but not aligned with text necessarily. Um, and the volume of data in video and audio, obviously, is much larger than text. Text is actually very small compared to those uh, modalities. And so um, how do we combine them into a single model? How do we combine them in these multimodal models? I can handle multiple of these. Um, and so this is one approach that they kind of outlined in a paper um, that was published around uh, Mirasol 3 billion. Uh, and, and it's able to basically have separate autoregressive components for each of the modalities and then combine them, um, the, which is, you know, if I were to look at a high level, it's actually not super, so super, super surprising um, of an approach, um, though this article seems to think that. Uh, so, so yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, unfortunately, uh, despite the fact that the research paper is out in the open, at the very least, um, there is no code or model weights, um, no training data, kind of no no API even. So um, this is, you know, uh, this is kind of where it stands right now. It would be obviously great and ideal to have something like this available on on Hugging Face or something. So That's right. Classic DeepMind is not going to release <laughs> anything. And as you said, not technically overly novel. I think the bigger no. story is the scaling. Uh, so they do have this, you know, free B because all the models need a B at the end of their names now to show off and uh, they do have results on training with a 512 frame videos instead of uh, 8 frame or 32 frame as a lot of prior work has done and if you look at the table of results uh, their numbers are pretty pretty good right like uh, definitely better than anything else and in some cases quite a bit better so um, yeah cool to see this multimodal area of uh, video and audio, which are still significantly challenging, you know, still making progress uh, pretty rapidly. And in the lightning round, we have just one more story originating from DeepMind with MetNet free state-of-the-art neural weather model available in Google products. So Google Research and Google DeepMind have developed this new weather model called MetNet Free, which can provide high-resolution weather predictions up to 24 hours in advance for all the typical weather stuff, precipitation, temperature, wind speed. And as you might imagine, it outperforms traditional physics-based numerical weather prediction models for you know a lot of places uh, predicting up to four, uh, 24 hours in advance. So if you're using Google weather prediction, now you have you know state-of-the-art results, I guess. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Next lightning round paper is instant 3D, instant text to 3D generation. And so just like kind of what the paper title implies, uh, the idea is that you can go from writing text to, um, a, you know, some kind of 3D model. Um, and this paper was uh, written by, you know, authors from the National University of Singapore, the CAI Lab, Skywork AI, and Xi'an Jiaotou University. Um, so it, it's um, kind of a, a collaboration across those universities and groups. 
Right. As we've discussed uh, a little bit before, this is building on all this uh, NERF research that's been ongoing for years. And the big uh, kind of limitation of a lot of this 3D stuff was the time. It took minutes to generate uh, 3D models. And here, uh, yeah, they speed up the training convergence by more than 10 times with kind of a few different tricks. So yeah, exciting stuff to see 3D generation becoming more and more kind of usable. And I'm sure next year we'll start having text to 3D apps where you can make little 3D models. And yes. video, yeah, yeah. And video games, yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, and specifically, they actually use uh, stable diffusion inside of their their big model. This reminds me of, um, well, first, Nerf was really popular before LLMs. There was like a big uh, or a little hype cycle around that. Um, and uh, this reminds me of all the papers back in computer vision where in autonomous driving, where there were just lots of different components and models put together to make make a system work. And so that's that's kind of what this this paper reminds me of. Related to that, our next paper is also on free generation. It's called 12345++, Fast Single Image to 3D Objects with Consistent Multi-View Generation and 3D Diffusion. So this is building on some of the prior work in 12345, whatever. And unlike the previous paper, this is going from image to 3D model instead of text to 3D model. But otherwise, it's a similar idea where given an image, they can generate uh, other novel views of it and then combine that into a 3D model. And this is uh, now doing that quite a bit faster than prior work. Uh, specifically, uh, it transforms a single image into a detailed 3D texture mesh in approximately one minute, which is, uh, yeah, pretty good going from one image to a 3D model. It used to take 10 minutes, five minutes, whatever. So, uh, you know, next year we'll all be living in our AI ho AR households, I guess. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It, it's cool to see how, um, yeah, it speeds up so quickly. Uh, I think optimizing for efficiency yeah, it becomes easier and easier once the technology demonstrates its capabilities. Uh, next paper is uh, Holistic Evaluation of Text-to-Image Models. Uh, and this is um, written by a very, you know, across several different Stanford labs, including Percy Leong's lab, Stefano Ermine, uh, my PhD co-advisor, uh, Jiajun Wu, and, and Fei-Fei Li. Um, among others, Yuri Letskovich, et cetera. And so, you know, the goal of this paper is to propose a new benchmark um, for uh, understanding text to image models specifically. And the benchmark name is HIME, uh, Holistic Evaluation of Text to Image Models. What it stands for, um, and they they really focus on multiple aspects of text image generation. So instead of focusing on one or two, you know, just text image alignment or image quality, they focus on they identify basically twelve different aspects or different uh, dimensions to um, rate or evaluate these models on. And so they really, you know, put in some thought on, you know, what actually make this model, what actually makes a model good. And so these include, you know, text to image alignment still and image quality still, but also aesthetics, originality, reasoning, knowledge, bias, uh, toxicity, fairness, robustness, multilinguality, and efficiency. 
Um, and they have multiple scenarios that they curate, uh, and they actually do evaluate it on 26 state-of-the-art text image models. Uh, and they find that actually none of the models excel um, in particular in every single aspect. So different models currently have different strengths. Um, I imagine that that will change. There will be ones that emerge, especially as benchmarks um, do help push progress. Um, so very excited to, to kind of see this work, um, uh, which is, again, another um, big uh, evaluation benchmark uh, piece of work. That's right. Yeah, similar to benchmarking language models, uh, benchmarking text to image models is tricky, as I think you know, Sharon, from your research. So this uh, does seem to be, yeah, maybe like the best uh, or or the most complete uh, evaluation that's been done so far, and it does highlight. Uh, quite a few kind of different dimensions to these 26 different models. They compare DALI 2 with stable diffusion and, and so on. So it's, it's quite interesting to look at this gigantic table of results they have that must have taken a lot of money to, to generate. And moving on to policy and safety with our first story, also from a couple of weeks ago, Biden issues executive order to create AI safeguards. So that's the story. This was quite a large uh, executive order that we can't go fully into, but there was uh, a lot of details about uh requiring companies to report to the government about the risks of their system, in particular for aiding countries or terrorists in making weapons of mass destruction. It also aimed to address the dangers of deepfakes. So to summarize a few of the details, uh, this order is over 100 pages in length, so there's a lot. Some of these notable elements uh, have to do with safety and security. So with Section 4 of it, establish a number of requirements on security and safety in AI and is uh, all about product safety risks. It directs the National Institute of Standards and Technology to develop guidelines and best practices with the aim of promoting consensus industry standards. It includes a specific resource on generative AI that will accompany the AI risk management framework. So building on some of the previous work by the uh, administration. There are also multiple sections that uh, focus on people and potential harms to people from AI systems. So section eight focuses on protecting consumers, patients, passengers, and students from a range of potential harms that arise from AI, such as fraud, discrimination, and threats to privacy and for that it directs agencies to address these threats across various sectors of the economy, healthcare, transportation, and communication. So this being the executive branch, it does a lot of uh, directing of kind of the federal government to institute various practices and so on insofar as it's possible in these various sectors. Uh, overall, I I guess I am a little bit worried about the government. Uh, I understand moving fast on regulation, but I I struggle to see that they deeply understand this uh, space and and can regulate it effectively. Um, so and I all I see is just lobbyists in the government who are representing um, the big tech corporations who want to uh, you know make sure that they're the only ones with the technology. And so um, I'm a little bit or a lot of it, uh, skeptical, skeptical about, um, the 
a true efficacy of this for for actually helping the growth of this technology, but also to help with the democratization and fairness of this technology as it's going to be distributed. That's right. And and some people have said that this could be bad in the sense that the big players like Microsoft will essentially lobby their way to having a market dominance. And one of the very specific things that this uh, thing did was establish uh, thresholds of compute for large models that would mandate the companies report red teaming results for these models to see if they can be broken. The order also uh, kind of cautions against releasing the weights of models uh, above a certain threshold. So concretely, uh, the compliance for these dual-use foundation models, uh, it says 10 to the 26 floating point operations, uh, or there's also details for biological sequence uh, data and at least 10, 23 floating point operations. So it does make, move us in a direction of imposing limits on computation and basically treating big AI models in a specific way and imposing additional requirements on companies that want to deploy these kinds of models or train these kinds of models, which is yeah, notable. But otherwise, this not being a law, it can't impose too much additional uh, requirements on companies. Yep. Unfortunately, though, it, it is pretty anti-open source. So I think a lot of people are pretty upset about that, um, that they have to redefend open source um, since that was an issue back in the Internet days as well. And speaking of policy, on the other uh, branch of government, we have Amy Klobuchar and John Foon introduce legislation for creating generative AI framework. So this bipartisan group of Senate lawmakers led by Amy Klobuchar and John Foon introduced this AI Research Innovation and Accountability Act of 2023. It aims to provide guidelines and guardrails for generative AI, bridging transparency, accountability, and security. It uh, includes definitions for certain forms of AI, um, has consumer notification requirements for generative AI images, and uh, various things like that. So, um, yeah, it's following up on some other uh, legislation on Gen AI from Klobuchar. Seems like you know a pretty interesting effort to actually start addressing some of the potential harms from Gen AI. And interesting in that it is a bipartisan effort, which is increasingly rare in the U.S. That is very rare. So that's actually kind of interesting that, that yeah, I think anti-tech sentiments or anti-AI sentiments might be um, actually bringing the two parties together a little bit more since it's probably a more, I would say it's probably likely because it's a newer issue rather than one that's been steeped in, you know, problems that have been ongoing for, for centuries, even, you know, like around, for example, like religion or something like something like that, or abortion, like those things have been going on for, for a long time. And on to our lightning round. Um, first article is Midjourney Stability AI and DeviantArt win a victory in copyright case by artists, but the fight continues. So 
the U.S. District Court judge, uh, William Oreck, has filed a decision um, in this copyright infringement case that was brought against Stability AI, Midjourney, and, and DeviantArt by, by three different artists. Um, and the judge basically granted the motion to dismiss the case, stating that the complaint was uh, defective in numerous respects, including the artist's failure to file copyrights for their own art. Uh, the judge suggests that unless it can be proven that AI image generators reference solely or primarily copyrighted art and produce substantially similar images, they are likely not infringing on the original work. And the artists have been invited to amend their claims and refile a narrower lawsuit citing specifically, you know, infringed copyrighted images. Um there's one count for direct copyright infringement against a stability AI has been allowed to move forward. For example. so, one count has been. Um, and this is a this is a big deal for for this obviously big fight that still continues um, as as it shows that you know it's one data point of a judge saying you know like this is not a copyright problem um, overall. Uh, so you know it's a big. Big case um, and uh, still to be judged, you know, not only in the image space, but also in the tech space. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, as we've covered in the past in the art community, these text to image generators have been very contentious. A lot of people really feel strongly negatively towards them and, and the ability of people to generate art in particular because they are in some cases trained on copyrighted material. In this case, uh, this was a class action lawsuit with Sarah Anderson, Kelly McKernan, and Carla Ortiz being the kind of representatives uh, of behalf of artists. And as you said, I think this seems to be mainly an issue with the way this was filed in particular, but I'm sure it'll be like 20 more lawsuits that uh, will happen. And I don't know, we won't hear the end of this anytime soon. This is definitely not the end of it. <laughs> and the next story is at UK's AI Summit, developers and governments agree on testing to help manage risks. So as we've covered in the last couple episodes, there was this big summit in the UK, where a lot of leaders from the US, EU, and China met to discuss uh, managing AI risks. And these representatives did sign a declaration to share a common approach to identifying and mitigating AI risks. This is the Bletchley Declaration. So this Bletchley Declaration is just a declaration. It's not any sort of legal framework. All of these countries basically just signed on saying that AI poses significant risks uh, and you know, there's particular risk at the frontier of AI. And these countries affirm that while safety must be considered across the AI life cycles, uh, actors developing from tier AI capabilities, in particular those AI systems which are unusually powerful, have a particularly strong responsibility for ensuring the safety of these AI systems. We encourage all relevant actors to provide context appropriate transparency and credibility uh, and, and so on. So it's kind of a, a pretty broad statement uh, of this view and I'm not sure how impactful it is, but a whole bunch of countries did sign up and I guess at least indicate that AI risk is a big deal. Yep. Uh, and I think it's, you know, it has to start somewhat vague, I suppose, for people to 
be down to sign it. So that's that's where it's at. Um, and the summit also included um, many different companies, including OpenAI, um, Google DeepMind, Microsoft, Meta, XAI. White faces generated by AI are more convincing than photos, find survey. Uh, so this is a new study that finds that people are more likely to mistake pictures of white faces generated by AI as human compared to photographs of real real people. And the study basically suggests that the algorithm used to generate AI faces, which you know largely trained on images of white people, might be the reason for this result. And researchers basically warned that this could have implications for identity theft and also perpetrate social biases. Um, the study also found that perceptions of race may be confounded with perceptions of being, quote, human due to the convincing nature of AI-generated white faces. Uh, I'm, yeah, not not sure exactly um, that that is a bold claim. Um, and the researchers developed a machine learning system that can accurately distinguish between real and AI-generated faces, faces with 94% accuracy. Um, overall, I would say that the uh, finding of this is not that surprising. I think we've seen articles like this and, and studies like this for a very long time now in AI systems. And what this is saying is that it probably still persists. And I think aside from that discrepancy, they do note this phenomenon of AI hyperrealism. So the fact that white AI faces are judged as human more often than actual human faces, uh, pretty dramatically, actually, the results uh, show that these 124 participants thought that 66% of AI images were rated as human compared to 51% of real images. So for some reason... You know, maybe because of how clean the AI images are or whatever, people go the opposite way of being less accurate. So it's, I think that is an interesting psychological result. This was actually published in a, a psychological science journal. Uh, so yeah, it's worth noting that maybe you can't distinguish these things very well. And on to our last section with synthetic media and art, and our last really big news story that we are catching up on. This is the story that striking actors and Hollywood studios agree to a deal. As we've been covering, there's been the strike by SAG-AFTRA, and a lot of it has had to do with AI and the actor's kind of desire to have specific rights when it comes to their likeness being captured and their performances being, I guess, generated with AI instead of uh, doing that. So after some contentious negotiation last week, they did agree to a deal with a lot of specifics as to what studios are allowed to do with AI. In particular, there are two kinds of digital replicas that are listed here, employment-based digital replicas, which are replicas made using scans of actual actors themselves, and independently created dig digital replicas that are uh, crafted to resemble real characters, uh, real actors in character. So that's basically what we already have of CGI. And this tentative agreement um, basically says that the studios need to actually tell you what they're capturing Replica for, not just have a, li a license to use your AI self for whatever you want. Uh, to, they need to get your consent, obviously. And there are some details as to 
how people would get paid based on the use of these replicas and so on. So yeah, pretty important outcome here in terms of this negotiation and having a deal on the table with regards to AI likenesses. And uh, I guess hopefully the movies we want to see next year won't be delayed too much more with this being probably ratified very soon. Yes, this is one of the uh, longest running strikes in Hollywood. So uh, as a result, it, it was probably delaying uh, many movies, um, especially, yeah, there's so many people involved there. Um, I think what's, you know, kind of interesting about this is that at the end of the day, the goal is to say, you know, there's a groundbreaking new piece of technology. We're scared that, you know, different players are scared that they're going to be cut out from any kind of profit, like their job will be gone in any way. So how can we ensure that we could all still make money essentially from this? That's basically what I heard is like, okay, at the end of the day, you can use this new technology, but how can we find a way so that we can still, you know, still all make money from it and not necessarily all all lose from it um, or only have one one player lose, sorry, one player win from it. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, there is a 17 page summary of the tentative agreement that you can read. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a summary. It's quite detailed. There's about five pages just detailing AI alone uh, for things like use of background actor, digital replicas, digital alteration, uh, lots of these kinds of details. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's been a big question and. I guess uh, turns out that these unions actually are making a big impact when it comes to AI and this emerging technology. And next article is Google is embedding inaudible watermarks right into its AI generated music. Uh, so the inaudible watermarks called Synth ID um, are. Uh, you know, embedded into this AI generated ma- music to be able to identify that it's actually a generated piece of music. Um, and, you know, that music is then, uh, you know, embedded into, um, oh, sorry, let me just start over. Next article is Google is embedding inaudible watermarks right into its AI generated music. Uh, and so this article is about how um, Google is, you uh, injecting essentially these watermarks called synth ID so that the generated music is identifiable as generated or as fake. Um, and uh, this is specifically for music created using uh, DeepMind's AI Lyria model um, that was uh, released previously. And the watermarks are meant to be, you know, essentially undetectable by our ears as humans, um, but they can be identified even if the audio is compressed or you change the speed, or you add additional noise to it. So um, these watermarking tools like SynthID are a way to basically safeguard against the potential harms of generative AI so that we can actually uh, be able to identify what's generated and what's real. And, um, you know, President Joe Biden's executive order on AI calls for government-led standards for watermarking AI-generated content, so it's related to that. I mean, SynthID works by basically converting the audio wave into... Um, uh, which a very you know common thing to do two dimensional visualization of um, uh, the frequency spectrum, um, and this uh, is claimed to be a unique approach of of trying to trying to do this. Um, I think in general, you know, watermarking is important. I'm curious, you know, what happens when someone uses partially generated, partially not generated stuff? What what kind of remains? Um, uh, what 
yeah, what, what is still there and what isn't. And so very curious to, to, to see how this evolves. That's right. Yeah. I think, uh, it's pretty, uh, notable that they are doing this, uh, partially because alongside this news, they also announced that, uh, they are releasing a new feature on YouTube called dream track, which can auto generate 30 second music tracks in the style of famous artists with, uh, several nine artists collaborating with YouTube on its development. And there are other music AI tools that they are showcasing that can generate tracks from hum melodies or text prompts. So, and, and this is powered by that model Lyria. As you can imagine, that means that as this gets rolled out on YouTube, this uh, watermark will enable um, you know various services to tell whether something was out of AI generated or not. And as we head into the world of deepfakes and so on, it would appear that platforms will increasingly need to be able to uh, filter data or you know inspect data that is uploaded to see if it is AI generated or not. So, yeah. Uh, cool to see music generation coming to YouTube with built-in, hopefully robust watermarking, although we'll see. On to another sector of entertainment, Microsoft is bringing AI characters to Xbox. Microsoft is partnering with InWorld AI to develop AI Xbox tools that allow developers to create AI-powered characters, stories, and quests. Uh, this will lead to this AI design co-pilot for creating scripts, dialogue trees, and quest lines. InWorld AI has been working on AI NPCs for quite a while, for several years. So this is, uh, I guess, yeah, pretty big move by Microsoft to push this type of technology, which is very much emerging still in gaming. And on to the very last story. CBS News launches new venture to identify AI deepfakes and misinformation. So this is CBS News confirmed. And the idea is to confirm whether various uh, types of media are deepfakes and misinformation or whether they are uh, real. This uh, initiative will include hiring forensic journalists, some training, some technology, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, that's kind of a cool announcement. We'll see you know, how substantive it will be, but there's been more and more news stories about things going viral that have been uh, deepfake or AI-generated. There's been news stories about images from the war in Gaza that have been AI-generated and and ones in Ukraine and so on. So it seems like we sorely need something like this. And I'm excited to see when it does come out. I'm actually really excited to see how this you know, structure is forming. Initially, people were thinking, oh, this is a separate um, company that does it, but it might actually make sense for the media to really care about this and own this as well, since it's so uh, you know, central to, to accurate and honest reporting. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, I think it's, you know, somewhat related to the community notes feature on, on X, uh, essentially showing that, um, you know, community can also write a set of notes on, you know, this is not accurate information necessarily. Here's like a footnote on what it actually is. And it, I just find that given the fact that there's more and more misinformation now or more and more generated information, this is uh, increasingly more important. Um, but what's interesting is to see that the media organizations are the ones who are um, both incentivized to own it um, and then also incentivized to, to make sure that this is this is all correct. 
And with that, we are done with this catch-up episode of Last Week in AI. Thanks a lot, Sharon, for coming back and co-hosting this one. Sure. This is last month in AI. Yeah, last <laughs> last few weeks in AI. And boy, what what a few weeks they have been. Uh, as always, if you like the podcast, please uh, review the podcast. Give us all the stars on all the platforms. Uh, and if you don't do that, we do like it if you share it with your friends and let them know this is definitely the best podcast about AI out there, uh, according to you. And if you don't feel like doing that, that's totally cool. All we really care about is that you keep tuning in as we keep releasing our episodes. So thanks again for listening and uh, talk to you next week.